The goalkeeper knocks it out. It's in the net and Aberdeen in front. John Hewitt. Petodre goes berserk. Hello and welcome to the Here We Go podcast. Now, usually we rely on the quality of our guests to save the show from uh, being dragged down to our level. But this week, it's one of these semi-regular Ask Us Anything shows where the great listening public supply the questions. So we're relying on you instead to save us from ourselves. I'm sure it'll all work out fine, and not least because uh, Martin Clunas is uh, alongside me as usual. How are you, Martin? Um, yeah, I'm doing all right, Richard. Are you braced for this tonight? Um, yeah, I'm actually quite looking forward to this. I had a wee peek at the questions earlier, so yeah, a few interesting ones. Um, the internet always throws up something exciting. We have uh, received a, a bunch of different questions on a load of different topics, actually. We did try and steer you off the current hot topic, um, also re- because really it's been at least the background noise for every show that we've done for the last 14 months. But, you know, hey... Let's start there anyway. The manager's future, Martin. First off, a question from RelG22 on Twitter. He's uh, just really curious as to everyone's choice of next manager and uh, whether Derek McInnes should be leaving now or in the summer. Now that we're now that we're past the transfer window, now that the the, the board have given him the dreaded vote of confidence, I think it's I think it's apparent that he won't be going any, going anywhere soon, um, very quickly. So I think it will be the summer. Rel G twenty two asked us um, for a potential choice of next manager. Now, you threw that hot potato at me a couple of weeks and I'll, weeks ago, and I'll be honest, I didn't, I wasn't expecting it. Um, <laughs> and so, and so the answer I had prepared um, just completely went out of my mind, and I was felt like a total idiot. Right, so <laughs> I'm going to give you it now, and you're, you're everybody out there. I know you're going to all laugh at me. People want a, a manager who. Can play, you know, entertaining football. One of his previous clubs he was at, he was loved by the fans. He bought entirely into what the club wanted to achieve. He lost his job because of the the team were struggling in their second season in the English Premier League. Um, he made a mis- he made a mistake taking a poison chalice, and a, a move to Scottish football could be seen as rebuild his damaged reputation, much in the way that Brendan Rodgers did. Um, so my pick for the for I think would be a good choice for the next Aberdeen manager would be David Wagner. Okay, I, I don't hate that. So, um, listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna chicken out of this question. I'm not gonna tell you who I want because I, I don't think there's any outstanding candidates out there. I, I think it'll be Stephen Glass, and I think there'll be a change of structure in that we will appoint a director of football, director of sport, whatever, and a head coach. and And I really think it'll be Stephen Glass, just based on the Atlanta connection that Dave Cormack has. Based on the fact that um, it can be spun with a former Aberdeen player, Cormac will be very much looking to strengthen that connection with Atlanta. And I think that's, if I was going to put money on it, which would be a fool's bet, obviously, <laughs> Stephen Glass for our next manager. But I definitely think that would be the structure, head coach and director of football. I don't think it's something that um, the board are prepared to do now with Derek McInnes in charge, because Derek McInnes has obviously been manager, sole manager, and I don't think that... Um, he would accept, first of all, that dilution on his authority, but but yeah, that's what I believe um, 
will happen. It might not be Stephen Glass, absolutely not. I mean, but I, I just can't get away from this nagging feeling. I think um, one of Cormac's kids lives next door to him as well. I think is that right? I'm sure I've heard, read, seen that at some point. I, I just think Cormac loves those links with Atlanta and uh, definitely wants to foster them as much as he can. So, Billy G, is it possible to get a manager that can play attacking attractive football whilst posting high points totals, winning cups and reaching Europa League groups? Also, how long would we realistically hold on to them? Well, of course it is. Of course it's possible. The next manager, or indeed, if Derek McInnes stays in a job beyond this summer, has a decent base to work from, both in terms of relative budget to the rest of the league, in terms of the facilities he's got available to him to do his job, and indeed, in terms of some of the players that he's got signed up beyond the end of this season. So yes, we, we absolutely shouldn't be scared of making a change. And it's totally possible to improve on what Derek McInnes has done. However, if the next man does improve on Derek McInnes' overall records, he will have done a very, very good job. And as I said the other week, the likelihood is, just the statistically, statistic likelihood, based on our previous managers, all of them throughout history, is that our next manager won't do as well as Derek McInnes. Everyone, every single club out there is looking for the manager that's going to transform their fortunes and looking for the, the sort of qualities that you spoke about um, in terms of connecting with the supporters, playing attacking football, etc, etc. Every fan base in every club wants that type of manager. So if we get a guy that comes in and does well for us and is then wanted by other clubs, again, we shouldn't fear that, but see it as evidence that we've recruited well and trust our process to do it again. And I think having that established director of football structure in place would then minimise any further upheaval down the line. When the offers came in for McInnes, and one of them obviously was because of who it was, but when they came in for McInnes, we were so scared that it was almost we had this cult of the manager, that we were, we, we were almost terrified to see him go at those points. Yeah, I think one of the I think one of the problems as well is that adds to that. Like, and you mentioned you know, the, the structure. I mean, director of football thing obviously would help with that. The the problem with you know you get a manager in who can do all that stuff is we're going to have we're going to we're going to see the same problem that, that McInnes has had as well, where you know other clubs, whether they be in England or whether they be one of the other the two from Glasgow, are going to cherry pick the players. Um, and mm-hmm. that's that's obviously that's something that I think is a is a struggle as well. And Mc, Mc, in terms of you know when you when you have to at times you have to defend Eric McInnes and say that you no know, his best players have been taken off of him um, at really inopportune times. And you no, know, but no matter who comes in next, that's that is going to happen as well. And unfortunately, that's one of the that's one of the perils of, perils of Scottish football is you know, you, the, you risk losing good players, and you also you do risk losing. You know, a, a good manager who, you know, if he's performing well, we, we've said it before many times on here. English football is mental, um, and you know they they see somebody do, doing well up here, and the, the offers would come. Yeah, there are there are structural issues regarding our sort of place in the pecking order of football, not just in terms of Scottish football, but in terms of world football, that are going to impair the ability of any Aberdeen manager to do his job. You know, we're no longer in the era of Jim McLean being able to hand out 10-year contracts and, and keep players and pay them 200 quid a week. The thing is, that we're at this point with the current manager that we see these things as almost excuses to to defend Eric McInnes' record, but they're not. They are real challenges that he's had to face and that any Aberdeen manager will have to face. So, yeah, I think that is a fair point that you're making there. We sacked... 
Jimmy Calderwood because we hoped that Mark McGee would take us to the next level. So a lot of people, a lot of Aberdeen fans are scarred by that and scarred by those words, take us to the next level, because it, it will be difficult. It would be difficult to do that. However, we shouldn't back away from making what is a necessary change just because the next appointment might not go 100% right. I've got this one from uh, Richard Lumsden, who asks us, Scott McKenna is the only product of the AFC Youth Academy, Youth Development System, sorry, to be sold for a substantial fee in recent years, um, rumoured to be £3 million. Why have we not seen more of this? Is it that the youth development isn't up to standard, or is it a lack of know-how in the transfer window stroke market? Yeah, I think the, the sort of lack of know-how point is an interesting one, because I, I likened it to you know, trying to play poker for the very first time when we got the McKenna bids in first, first of all. And certainly in both cases with McKenna and Cosgrove, the two big sales, I know Cosgrove didn't come through our youth system, but he's still a guy that's been developed here. We certainly didn't sell them at the top of their valuations, but we did reject good money bids for them. And we did end up securing reasonable prices uh, based on you know where they were in terms of current form where they were in terms of uh, length of time left on the contract, where they were in terms of their relationship with the club as well. So I think that probably does stand us in better stead down the line, knowing other clubs now know that we're not going to be fully taken advantage, advantage of you will have to name a very good price. Youth development is definitely something where Derek McInnes could have had greater patience without necessarily harming the overall results of the first team dramatically. Young players did get opportunities under Derek McInnes. I think way back to his very first home match in charge, he, he put a 16-year-old Craig Story in the lineup, And I know that was a dead rubber, but still, I think it was a bit of a statement to say, you know, look, if you are good enough, you will get a game. And I think well, we've seen that obviously later down the line with Lewis Ferguson basically playing whenever he's available, ever since he signed here. And then you get guys like Cammy Smith, famously. Scott Wright's another one. He first got into the squad when he was 16. And he was in and about the squad. I mean, Scott Wright featured in exactly the same number of games in total between sub-appearances and starts, 79, as he was an unused sub for, 79. You have to, under Dermot McInnes, grab the limited opportunities that you get and prove that, you know, that place is yours and you're not going to give it up without a fight. But I think that not all young players are going to be able to do that. And there have definitely been some who have gone on, had to drop down a level or two, absolutely, because they haven't had the development time here that they perhaps should have done. And are now carving out very decent careers for themselves. Shanklin's obviously the one which everyone's going to mention simply because of his goal-scoring record. And whilst the goal-scoring rate isn't up to what he's had in past seasons, not that you would expect it to moving up to the top flight, Certainly he appears to be playing pretty well and actually was probably the best player in the park at Pitodri a few weeks ago. But if you look down at the championship in England, there's guys like Michael Rose, who obviously was let go, went to air and has now moved on to Coventry. Clark Robertson even, who, you know, I think if you asked any Aberdeen fan at the time, he didn't, you know, didn't get a huge amount of first-team opportunities under McInnes, but I don't think anyone would have complained that him being let go in a free transfer, but he's gone on to have a very solid career down in England and, again, is a championship player these days. The bar has obviously been raised in terms of youth development since McInnes arrived and also since the financial situation has improved, it's probably easier now to go out and get a player rather than let a young player bed in. And not only that, 
But I suppose the necessity of having to win every game has also increased during Der- Derek McInnes' time here. So he's probably less likely to trust a young player to bed in, to be given the minutes, instead of going with a tried and, trusted, uh, t- tried and tested professional. Um, I understand it. I, I just think he could have been a bit braver with some of his choices without necessarily impacting the overall trajectory of results. You look back, and these aren't necessarily Derek McInnes, Derek McInnes players, but I think I know. I think some people are maybe irritated by that when you see sort of someone like Ryan Fraser, who I think only played what twenty three games for Aberdeen, um, going down, and there was obviously lots of rumoured fees before he ended up. He ran his contract down. Um, you mentioned obviously you mentioned Michael Rose there. You see someone like Jack Grimmer, who's carved out a pretty decent career for himself as well. Um, I think he only started one game, if I remember, if I'm right, for us. So I think that I think the irritants comes from that as well. We're seeing pe- players going down down England and having good careers that you know perhaps you no know, they could have they could have maybe given more, but if they don't take the opportunities here, they're not going to be offered contracts. And if they are offered contracts but don't see the opportunities, they're going to move. It's I suppose you know it's a bit of a catch twenty two um, for young players. So I can I can but I can fully understand um, why players would want to move and not sort of, not sort of spend time sitting on the bench or you know, a move to England is you no know, I suppose we would be more attractive than a season on loan to air for example or whoever but I think in some of those cases you know we didn't really have too much a much of a choice I mean Drummer basically was 16 when he moved yeah. I think wasn't he and um, as you say had barely made an, barely made a start for Aberdeen and there's been a couple of guys like that who have gone from Aberdeen to certainly clubs with more spending power without even making a first team of payments during Derek McInnes' time here. You've got Terry Taylor who went to Wolves and actually just moved on again from Wolves in the last transfer window. Um, I don't think there was much of a fee involved because I'm sure we would have had a, a sell-on involved there. And then there was um, the young keeper, uh, Mayer, who went to, to Norwich City. And I don't think there's anything we can do about those those situations. I think, you know, I presume, presume Norwich were a Premier League club at the time that um, that he moved down there. It's just there's very little we can do against clubs who have got budgets, many multiples of our own, who have got um, seemingly better opportunities for player development, better facilities. Less so now. The gap is going to be less so now that we have our own dedicated facilities. But back then, that was definitely a factor. And there's another question that came in from Robert McIntosh, and I think I kind of covered part of this, but we can definitely speak about the second part. He says, the has the transition from the youth setup to the first team got harder over the years, and will better coaching at Cormac Park sort this in the years ahead? Cormac Park is certainly not going to hurt youth development, but it's not a magic bullet, nor is it a magic bullet for the training and the set pieces and all the other things which are not as we would want them to be right now. But um, but Cormac Bar is certainly not going to hurt across loads of different aspects of player development. In terms of like sort of players from from the youth team, it's like to get to get to the to the first team. Obviously, no, they're not they're not playing, you know, a hell of a lot of you know what you would call competitive competitive games down there. 
we've we've seen we've we've spoken about it was mentioned earlier about putting young players out on loan. I mean, I seem I seem to remember, and I'm, I'm willing to be wrong on this, Richard. That you know, when we had the reserve when we had the reserve league, it was a little bit more competitive. Um, and I and it, it was that was that maybe something that was was a better bridge to getting young players in and around the in, you know, near and ready for the first team. Um, but I say you're you'll probably a bit more reserve games than me. Just. Um, through for being a wee bit older, but I seem to remember those games. You know, you used to get in. I think you used to get in for nothing with your season ticket as well at Pataudry for some of them. This, I seem to remember them being a little more competitive than perhaps it would be when you're playing sort of development games. Yeah, but I mean, this was thirty-five years ago, basically in the eighties. It's <laughs> the but game has moved on so much, <laughs> so much since then. I think one of the other problems about youth development in terms of that breakthrough into the first team is that fans themselves can be pretty two-faced about this stuff. We always say we want to see youth development prioritised, but if we lose a game because our rookie left-back has made an error, we'll scream until we're blue in the face at the manager. And in fact, I remember Clark Robertson doing exactly that in one of the few games in his final season. He got a start and, and sold the jerseys for a goal, and it, the home crowd were very unforgiving. As I say, we as supporters can be quite two-faced about this. But I think Scottish football as a whole hasn't quite worked out what the best plan is. You know, we can have our focus groups, all the reports out, or Henry McLeish can be sent out to do another report. We still haven't worked it out. Self-interest absolutely rules, obviously, when it comes to things like the Colts plan. Even just the word sends a, sh- a shiver down my neck. It's just an a- a- abhorrent idea. Uh, whether it's kind of age-range leagues or whether it's back to a, a more traditional idea of a reserve team, I don't know. I think you'll find most clubs probably would rather go down the age route, not necessarily from a player development perspective, but because they're unlikely to be carrying squads of you know, full-age professionals, simply from a financial perspective. Different clubs in our league will have different ideas about what's best for them in terms of youth development, which is why Scottish football as a whole hasn't decided what is best for it. Because of these competing interests, and more of the fact, because in our top league we have polarised clubs, you have big, big clubs with huge turnovers, like those two, and then you've got teams which you know, frankly, are all but part-time, like your Hamiltons, sharing the same league, they are never going to come to agreement on on what's best for youth development because they have completely different ideas. Who's been better at doing it over the over the past 10, 15 years? Has it been Hamilton? Has it been Rangers? Well, it's been Hamilton, really, hasn't it? That's one of the things I think that you know, trips up a lot of people when, when we talk about re- league reconstruction, which thankfully we didn't get any questions on. You know, when you've got clubs at the bottom of the, the bottom of the league, who it's just it's all about staying in the staying in the in the division. Do you want to speak a bit about Cormac Park? Because we also got questions in from Car Handle. How much value does the panel think that the chairman is getting out of Cormac Park? Um, and from Robo, has Cormac Park been a helper or a hindrance? <laughs> what does um, what does De- um, Dave Cormac get out of get out of the it, it, the chairman being called Cormac Park? Or how much value does was the question? Um, I think he gets a very big ego boost. What value he gets from it, I'm not I'm not really sure. Let's talk a little bit more prosaically in terms of value to the club. Um, in terms of value to the club, I mean it's it is priceless. God forbid if we ever interview Craig Brown for this podcast, um, and he can tell us all about when he used to send Neil Cooper out looking for out to Balgownie and out to Seaton Park, looking for looking for a patch of grass for the first team to train on, such as, as such as one of his stories that he always loves to tell. I mean, look, 
the the fact that the, the fact that they've got a, a training a training park that is available when when needed, it, it would allow all the sports science and all these guys to plan perfectly when they need when they need to when they need to do all the sessions, what needs to happen, getting the guys in for video things and all this. There's no question about having to schedule stuff now. It's just that we have this place. We've said so many times before, and it's it, it's a it's an obvious opinion that you know. Aberdeen has needed this for for years and years. It was vital that it was built before any potential stadium was built as well. It's like it it needed to be done. And while we've obviously been um, because there's been questions raised about you no know, fit did the DU at Cormac Park because you no know, we've seen obviously we're struggling this season. It, it'll 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 prove its value. But I mean, clearly it was something the club had to do. It was an embarrassment not having one in place at this point for Dave Cormac's purpose it leaves a legacy if nothing else that he was the man who made that happen has it been a help for him yeah of course of course it's been a help uh, with regards to Craig Brown you can't see me obviously on this but I am like Christy the Klein waving that signed affidavit saying we will never have Craig Brown on this podcast so <laughs> you'll have to go elsewhere for your banter from Craig Brown now finally on this section that we were sort of Tagging training, youth development, uh, just dipping back into um, something we spoke about last week. Uh, giving Sam Cosgrove's comments retraining intensity. Is the training regime hard enough on the players? We seem to be bullied and outfought by all teams. Are we fit enough? And that's from Rod. I don't know. I mean, I just think we're being outplayed as much as anything. Outweighted tactically more than physically. Someone made the point that we're not scoring as many late goals as we used to, but I don't think we're conceding that many. I don't have the numbers to hand, actually, but I don't think we're conceding many late goals either. We're just conceding bad goals and not scoring any goals. I think Rod's right saying about being, about being bullied and outfought is, yeah, but I mean, I don't think that's a fitness thing. Um, again, I think that is a tactical thing. As Aberdeen fans, we love, and I'm, and I'm, and I'll include myself in this, We'll love to use the whole thing about you know what, get him down on a beach, get him running like Fergie used to. It's not like that, it's not like that anymore. And I think that though, we like to think that you know the players should be you know should be able to train anywhere and it should be harder. I mean, I've no doubt that the training is is no is difficult and it pushes the players. Um, we we met, we touched on this last week, so I won't go on about it too much. But you know, the Cosgrove's comments about the intensity, um, I think we're taking. A little bit out of context. So he was asked a qu- he was asked a question and he answered it in a stupid way. I don't think that no, on the basis of one session, um, he can suddenly say that the coaching at Birmingham is is more intense or better or whatever than the the coaching at Aberdeen. And I don't think that was what he was meaning. The problems we have right now is it, it's tactical more than anything. You know, the players on the on the pitch. You know, there seems to be plenty of running in them, plenty of plenty of ability there. It just seems to be that at the moment. We're struggling. It's a, it is. It's a, it's a tactical problem. And teams, though, we've came up against teams like Livingston. We've played them twice. Where you know we've just had a manager that's we've came up against a manager who you know and and others that have just implemented a plan well against Aberdeen. I know we've got a man. We've got our manager who's under pressure, perhaps that's maybe causing it as well. I don't think they you know that the players look unfit at all. Yeah, I think there's definitely something you could level. Uh, with evidence this season against Comart Park, and that's the the number of injuries we seem to be picking up. And 
Dan McInnes was obviously asked about this a few weeks ago and got pilloried for his response, which, I mean, his response would have come via his sports scientists, but the fact that the the type of pitches they use there are different to the type of pitches they use at Pataudry. Um, you know, there's a, a synthetic base out the road and, and not one at Pataudry. That sounds to me like the, a, a sort of answer that a sports scientist would have given him because I think he then backed it up with like percentage increases over what you would expect a club to have and, and things like that. So I'm sure that would have come from, from our sports science team as opposed to just being his random assessment. Taking what he says and, and, and just thinking that he's making shit up at this point, which is... <laughs> Which, yeah, I mean, that's logical. It obviously leads to the question, why didn't it happen before when we were training here, there and everywhere? Well, I guess if we were doing a lot of training at um, some of the private school sports grounds and things, they're probably just going to have sand-based pitches as as opposed to some of the hybrid synthetics um, that they have at Cormac Park. So, you know, arguably, they could have been training on similar, more similar surfaces back then than they are now. To fix that is going to cost money, and I suppose you want to have a, a greater sample size in one season before you spend that money to, to make that change, especially if we're going to be uh, nice staying at Pataudry for a good while, which I think is pretty clear for everybody to see um, that I think will be at least a decade before there's even a consideration to, to moving anywhere now. Then there's some questions which came in on sort of transfers and squad shaping. The first one um, from XL Dawn is quite interesting because it, it, it's something which has actually changed today. So he asked for a, a thoughts on future transfer policy, impact on player retention given the new EFL salary cap and Brexit limitation on player movement, um, especially in relation to the club's stated aim and club's annual report of signing young Scottish talent or players in undervalued markets. Um, well, as you may not have seen, the wage cap which had been in place for third and fourth tiers in England, so the two leagues below the championship, um, and certainly markets which were competing with us to sign players, absolutely. Um, that, that's that been unravelled this evening after a complaint by the Players' Union. So they're going back to the system that they previously used, which is basically no salary cap and um, <laughs> liquidations all over the place. So whether that then comes back into play remains to be seen, I suppose. But obviously... That, in theory, should have been a good thing for Aberdeen if there was less chance of them being outbid from clubs in that market. If it kept the championship superheated, good, good. Brexit is obviously still playing out and it is going to be interesting. It seems as if, from what I can read, from what I gather, that the Scottish system is going to be largely unchanged so that Essentially, it's going to be a panel of experts deciding whether you know this player is of exceptional quality to make a difference to a league. And I can tell you, looking back on some past um, recipients of a work permit, that the words exceptional quality have a lot of flexibility to them, a lot, a lot of elasticity to them. But down in England, it, it's going to be a harsher system, a tighter system. So in theory, it should increase the value of any exports to England. That's why I, I knew that you know, however bad that Sam Cosgrove was playing this season, however out of form he was, he was still going to have an intrinsic value as an English player with a proven record over a couple of seasons as a goal scorer because, you know, there's a limit now to, to what clubs in the second tier can do because, you know, they can't go and pick up players from the top nations. They can't go and 
pick up players that are going to be in the top 5% of the wage bracket or whatever the other criteria are for getting a work permit. But equally, as we spoke about earlier, it might get harder and harder still to hang on to your really promising youth talents, i.e. the guys at 15, 16, like the Terry Taylors, like your Archie Mayors. So it could easily be a double-edged sword. What about the the point uh, about um, the club's aims of signing young Scottish talent um, or undervalued markets? Um, One might argue that um, our one foray into a different market has um, not exactly gone to plan in terms of signing a young right-back from Norway. Uh, Yeah, that certainly hasn't gone to plan. I mean, it's, it's fine for him, he's sitting... He's sitting at home, get, at home and getting a tan at the moment, so he's doing all right out of it. I mean, I suspect by now he's sitting in Georgia somewhere, getting a tan. But never mind. Yeah, well, he's. I mean, the thing is with that, that's a that's a complete anomaly, um, you know. And I'm sure that you know we don't know the truth yet, but I'm sure it'll come out um, come out in the future um, about what what really happened and how. I think we all suspect that it was it was basically we were a holding we were a holding club. The, the thing comes from identifying players from the, these places that perhaps you know other other clubs w- wouldn't look at. I mean, I was always of the idea that you know that you you should be able to pick up you know young players from from within Scotland. But um, you know you look at you look at places like Sweden or Denmark or these type of places where you don't you don't tend to see young players coming into coming into sort of the the UK from um, the, the, the talent's got to be there um, the problem is that is A identifying them um, and then obviously B you know, getting, getting them in the door and them being good enough um, and I think that's something that we probably haven't done enough in the past um, now, whether, now that you would have to assume that that's a Derek McInnes thing where he wants to stick with what he knows um, because you know it's not been a successful thing for him before um, when he's brought in somebody who isn't from a player from the UK. I don't think... I know we, we constantly complain about the recruitment being lazy. In some cases, it certainly it has been uninspired, to say the least. But I, I think you have to say that, in general, the policy that has been pursued of, of trying to cherry-pick the better players in this league who become available in our wage budget has not been a bad one no. you know it has contributed to a reasonably consi- a, a very consistent set of league performances it has contributed to to players developing here and I think that's a, that's a really important point the likes of McLean and Shinney have come through here it would have been great to get a transfer fee although technically we did get one for Kenny McLean it would have been great to either get a transfer fee or still have those players of course but you know they came in they gave us a number of years of good service and they've moved on and we have we have fond memories of them and and it's interesting isn't it because you've actually got almost a test case that you can judge the success of our policy against the policy that's almost been the polar opposite you know, you have to look at Hearts and the fact that they have explored different markets, that they've clearly gone and bought players based purely just on, well, not purely, but predominantly on video analysis. They've scoured different leagues, different places to bring in these guys who nobody in Scottish football would have heard of. And, you know, we know that that's exciting for fans, getting somebody in who who all the information you've got off him is, is a sort of half-written Wikipedia profile, maybe the odd clip on YouTube. 
And all you've got to do for a club with pretty much the same budget as us, look at where they are now compared to where we are. We're having a bad time of it and we're fourth. They had a bad time of it and they got relegated. We shouldn't close our eyes to the possibility of going out and scouting other markets. It's much cheaper to do now, obviously, with the with the tools that are available. But uh, first and foremost, I, I, there's almost like a cultural thing as well. I think if we can get guys who have proven the performers in this league then it sets you up for success. No, I, I, I totally agree with I totally agree with that. No, them, yeah, definitely. Next question we got on um, the transfers and subscribe chamber was from Stewie. Uh, and he asks, Richard, what striker would you and will we have come next season? <laughs> uh, yeah, easy question, that's Stewie. Um, what I want this next season, whoever's in charge, whatever the situation is, is that... We have, we start the season with a striker that actually fits the system that we are intending to play. Whatever system that might be, we start the season with a guy who fits and fits well into the style of play we want to play. Because this season, when we started with Cosgrove and Maine, and we didn't really have a defined style of play when we started the season, let's be clear about that. But when we shifted to 3-4-3, neither Cosgrove or Maine, who were our main strikers, contracted to the club, fitted that system, as has been proven subsequently. But on Marley Watkins, he did fit that system and it worked pretty well. But that's what I need to see. I need to see round pegs and round holes next season, basically. So someone that fits the system, someone as backup who can also fit the system, and then for your third striker in the squad, I want a different option to play a second striker if we want to change it up. So I can't give you names, that's not the sort of thing. There'll be people out there who who do spend um, endless hours on scouting uh, software and be able to, to give you a list. There's certainly nobody from within the Scottish leagues who, are, who I think is an outstanding pick. Of course, we will hear people say, Richard, um, what's, Louis, what's Louis Moult doing? Because he seems to be the one that always crops up every transfer window. Yeah, Louis Moult and Alan Gow until the end of time. <laughs> Alan Go, Jesus. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> the next one we had was from Jeff Morrison, who said, asked, do we really plan ahead with a list of targets, or is that just something they say? How do we realistically improve our recruitment? I think that something that we've heard heard many times is that the, the particularly the current management team plans two windows ahead. Um, and then, like we saw with a recent window, uh, Richard, uh, people, people got quite upset when you see the you know you see basically all the three three strikers heading out the door, and three strikers heading in in what seemed like a very a, a kind of last minute scramble, um, and we find you know, we found ourselves short. We've certainly been we're certainly I think short short in defence. Um, you know, I think we'll. No, I think that's been been apparent. You know, we've been struggling this season. Um, I, th- I mean, there, there is definitely a list of targets. The manager has said that much himself. You know, he says he's he's put names to the place. You know, I think he said he said definitely said about Ross McCrory was one that he told the board about that should he ever become available. Um, I think though that he'd admitted that no, he'd been, he'd been a long time admirer of Hornby, but but you no, know, we knew that there was very little chance of getting him. So there definitely is a list of targets there. Um, he's obviously not going to come out and tell us who they are um, because for at the risk of you know 
clubs clubs either jacking up the price or other clubs coming in and sniping ahead of us. Um, not really sure how you know. I mean, how do you realistically improve your recruitment? I guess that comes from. Um, I guess that comes from having, you know, I being able to you know I you say having when you like you say about a striker, having a system and a set way, and then you bring in players that that absolutely fit that fit that system. I think that's how, that's probably the best way to tr- to improve your recruitment rather than. You know, rather than trying to work around what's available, um, you try and get in guys who can fit your fit what you want to do fo- on on the football pitch. I think that's the best way, certainly, to improve your hit rate. Um, and yeah, I did I did touch upon this last week in terms of, you know, I think some of the signings have been based on that they are the best available player that we can get at that point as football players as opposed to guys who can do a specific job in a system that is going to work well for us and I I offered up McCrory as an example of that Um, I think under the you know under the current setup with a head of recruitment reporting to the manager it's um, it's difficult because the manager is clearly wedded to um the head, current head of recruitment and um, I think inevitably once the manager goes his backroom staff will go if the manager goes um, so realistically improving our recruitment under the current structure yeah you have to I think you have to have the, the, the system, a working system first and then identify targets based on that to improve your hit rate but I think the other way you go is that you, as I spoke about before, you have a director of football in. So you're essentially splitting that uh, part of the job away from the current responsibilities of the manager. And um, hopefully you're, ma- you're, you're making more informed decisions because your director of football has got more time to devote to that. Interesting question here from David M. Um, how do we motivate the players when the majority will be leaving at the end of the season? We know we've got a big squad turnover come um, come the end of the season. I think it's still something like 12 or 13 players out of contract. But I, I would question the majority. I wonder if the majority of regulars are currently sat with their with their contracts expiring. Um, and anyway, fringe players really should be motivated for their future, either here or a secure contract elsewhere because this coming summer is going to be a bloodbath. I absolutely. I mean, look, you look at the you look at the list of players that we've got got, got no out of contract. Um, you know, you know, Bruce Anderson is out on loan anyway. Michael Devlin, I um, assume he's still injured. Um, you know, Tommy Hoban. You know, fingers crossed. Let's. That's one we want to keep hold of. I think Hoban's away. By the way, this is just a just a hunch, just a feeling. But I think the wording that he used in, when he did the press a couple of weeks ago. Um, I know it's not what people want to hear. It's not what I want to hear. But just um, I think that was so similar to yeah. what we've seen in similar situations before. So so I think and and there's no question that we would have been trying to tie up Tommy Hoban. Before says Conor McLennan, so I, I yeah, just that that's not been done by now. Um, is probably isn't a good sign. The only one, so you've got Ash Taylor, and then you've got you no know, two young players, Ethan Ross and Mikko Vertonen. Um, so it's not guys that have played a lot of games. I include, and I'll include Niall McGinn in that, because um, Niall McGinn's the one who, you know, you would you would think that when we've been struggling, you put on a guy who can. A guy can play. You no, know, he can play it wide. He can play through the middle. He's played up the fr- up front for us. He's one that 
you know you you would perhaps turn to. Um, he's one way, and you're, you're right. When you're, you're, we've said it, we've agreed with you many times about that. This summer is going to be a bloodbath. You know, if Niall McGinn leave, leaves Aberdeen, which he's is no, I'm a hundred percent sure he's going to. He's going to have. He's going to have you know pretty much every team that's below us in the league lusting after him, you know. You reckon? I think I think he will. I think he'll know. And the thing is, he's going. To, he'll have to be reasonable. I think with in terms of in terms of wages and things like that, because clubs don't have the money because they've gone. You know, we've all just gone through a season with no crowds, um, so clubs are losing money hand over fist. But I do. I think that. I think the likes of your St Johnstons, um, Kilmarnock, I'd be willing to predict now that I think that I think that Del McGinn will end up would would probably rock up at Kilmarnock next season. Um, I think these type of teams will be absolutely falling over themselves to try and get hold of him. I think we do have a lot of names coming up at the end of the season, but that's partly because clearly the decision was taken to try and reduce the upheaval last summer, and I think we only had uh, maybe Thomas Journey of the squad basically coming out of contract last summer uh, and Greg Lee's loan as well coming to an end the decision had been taken to try and have a settled couple of years after you know a number of years where we lost key players at the end of every season so obviously that means that this season was always going to be one where there was always going to be double um, the, the sort of number of players coming out of contract and then obviously this is fast becoming a cliche but who could possibly have foreseen what actually did happen last summer I think in the in the current climate, in the current scenario, I think to have the number of players that we have out of contract is not necessarily a bad thing. I look at the sort of players contracted beyond the end of the season, and there's maybe only one or two there where you're beginning to have doubts about, you know, oh no, we've got him for another year kind of scenario, and that's always a always a risk and always a problem when you do move from where we were when Derek McInnes first came in, which was a club which barely handed out contracts longer than one or two years to where we are now, where there seems to be more of a structure. However, the sort of balance sheet has taken a real hit. If you if you think about our, our contract situation as a balance sheet, you've got, obviously you, you had at the start of the season, Scott McKenna on a long-term deal, worth a lot of money. Sam Cosgrove on a longish-term deal, worth a lot of money. The manager back then had a much better reputation Joe Lewis had been signed on for four more years. It, you, you thought everything was rosy with him. Uh, you know what I mean? The, the actual balance sheet in terms of what the assets are worth that we have under contract has taken a hell of a hit this year. And it's been to the benefit, clearly, of um, helping our profit and loss so that uh, over the course of the season, we, we're we not going to come out with the sort of horrible numbers they're going to be helped by the, the sort of 5 million I'm sure it won't be 5 million to the bottom line this year but the the money is that we've taken in from the sale of both McKenna and Cosgrove I think this has been a bruising year for every club in football but our balance sheet has definitely taken a hit and I, that's what a lot of the work over the past couple of years has been about building up the value in that sort of squad balance sheet if you will we, we've gone backwards not just because of sort of things which are out of our control in terms of the pandemic, but gone backwards in terms of the value of some of those assets that we have under contract, being out of form, being less well regarded than they were twelve months ago. But in terms of motivation, I, I don't I don't really see that being an issue. I really don't. I mean the players have if nothing else should be absolutely desperate to secure their own future. This will be a very different summer, I'm absolutely certain about it. 
uh, football appears to have been on a bit, a bit of a denial for far too long now, but that that can't continue. At least not in leagues like ours, where you know we're heavily, heavily reliant on gate money. Okay, a lot of questions came in under tactics, Martin. Michael Sutherland, loss of hedges and right. What should you do to find our creativity? Hazen Kennedy off the boil. Should we be looking at other options on the bench? Um, Chateau Windy asked about Niall McGinn. He thinks that he's the solution. Um, get McGinn up with Hornby. Hazen Kennedy on the wing equals goals, he says. Um, questions about our centre-backs, which you'll come to earlier. Well, let's, let's talk about the attacking options. Um, first of all, Martin, what do you reckon? Um, well, yeah, I mean, look, um, Hedges and Wright obviously are a big, are a big miss for us. There's no getting away from that. I would like to see a, perhaps a change in formation, a change in tactics. I think, you know, Hayes, I think Hayes is struggling. He's playing too deep. I think Kennedy's struggling because he's not really a winger. Um, you know, we've mentioned this that many times that you know, we, I think we would both like to see Kennedy either you know either you know as as an attacking mid- midfielder or supporting supporting a striker. If you ch- change change the tactics, change the formation, perhaps perhaps going to a four, which we've which we've not done as much this season, that allows Johnny Hayes to to not have to be playing so deep. Um, I think that Hayes has struggled this season. He's he's obviously slower than he was when he was here the first time, you know, because because he's older, and that's just what no, that's just it happens to all of us. I no, I, I still think he has a lot to offer as an attacking attacking force for us. Um, and I would li- I would like to see him playing on the left. I've seen him work. He worked so well when we had when Andy Considine was playing at fullback. Um, I'd like to see us go to something similar to that again. Um, I think that would would probably get the best out of him. And you know, then the other, the other side, you know, while Hedges is out, um, we've got Con- we've got Connor McLennan, who we've just offered a new deal to. So clearly, clearly, there's something special there that the manager sees that that we all hope is there as well. So I think that potentially would be the option. I've spoken so much times about Neil McGinn on here, but you know, the manager has clearly fallen out of love with him. Uh, he's on his he's on his way out. There's absolutely no way he's going to be staying. Um, he's not getting. He's, he's getting hardly any minutes this season. He's came on and came on in a few games here and there. I think he did start maybe four or five games ago or something. Uh, but we, but we've not seen a lot of him, um, and he's not and he's not good, clearly not going to be the solution. Um, if he if he was anywhere near a solution, then he would have been he would have been been starting up front or playing playing up playing alongside a striker up front as well. Well, I mean his his influence and impact is clearly waning. But you know I. I I don't think he's finished, despite what the black and white social media would have it so often. I think there is still a part to play for him this season. Um, there's a question later on about set pieces, and you know, I think one of the main reasons that we've not been as dangerous this year is simply because the guy who was very, very good at set piece delivery hasn't been in the team now and again. Question that we got in about him spoke about him being a former twenty goal season striker, and he was, but that was seven years ago that he did that. It's a long time ago. It's a different player he was back then, quite frankly. But I still think there was definitely a role between that and the end of the season for now again. All season long, we have spoken about the position of fullbacks stroke wingbacks all season long. I remember in the very first debrief we did after uh, the Rangers game, we spoke about the positioning of the... Uh, I can't remember if it was a four that day, but I, I remember speaking about Hernandez's positioning at right back and... That went on in Perth. We spoke about it, and we spoke about it so often. And it's it's quite clear that that you are basically 
it's a yeah. five. It's almost always a five. It's it's never been that three four three that it really should be operating as. Apart from that period where we had that spell at the start of the season and Watkins was was first come came into the side. I agree with most of what you've said that uh, I think Hayes can still be an important player for us. Matty Kennedy is not a right wing back, and he's probably not best suited as a winger either. Um, I, I do believe that we should be giving him him the opportunity to to play as a ten off say a Hornby. And at least see how that goes, because again, I, I've just not seen it. Even on Saturday, it was it was Hayes who was who was tasked with getting close to Hornby, which I, I just couldn't understand it. I really couldn't understand it. I mean, there were other questions that we got in about formations. Will he BT with the current players in the squad? What formations should we play instead of the three four three? I I agree with you. I think we should be back, Martin, to to that four two three one, back to basics, as it were. But I really think there needs to be an emphasis on just having the, the sort of one sitting midfielder rather than two in home games. So more like a a, a four one four one. You know, if, if that means that McCrory has to come out of there and into the back line to improve the back line's distribution, and and you have McGeer playing sitting, then fine, do that. I, I just think we really need to find much more of a forward-thinking creative spark in those games in particular. Even if we we are still actually doing okay at home and still picking up a reasonable amount of points at home, I just think we need to get that spark, get going in these home games and really start to to attack teams and really start to go at teams. Because if we can do that, say we get a convincing win over St Mirren this weekend, which I do not believe we will, by the way, because I think St Mirren are one of the teams who absolutely have our number this season. But say we do, and I know it's Celtic the next two games after that, I, I just think that would be... Such a lift mentally, just to to go at a team and to to really attack a team. The shackles need to come off this team. If there's any chance of the manager saving his job, the shackles have to come off. He has to go for it. He has to absolutely put his tendencies to one side and take the shackles off. Could agree more. Just um, yeah, without getting in too much into looking forward to the game. Yeah, this start no, this Saturday is 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 vital. You know, and really, what what it would do is to get to turn them over. With a with a really strong performance, and yeah, that that will come from if he changes the formation, and we are, and we really go at them, and with a lot with more inta- attacking intent, and yeah, having the two sitting is is a is a source of frustration because. Well, there's a question specifically on Ferguson McCurry actually, who obviously had been the midfield two more often than not this season, and it's from Hamish, and he asks if Ferguson McCurry actually work as a two in midfield in our current system, and are we utilising them properly? Well, really, for me, the jury jury is out. And it does feel like a bit of a repeat of the Shinny Ferguson combination, and that both of the, both of the, those players, Ferguson and McCurry, are at their best as turnover players, guys who are going to go and get the ball back for you and, and turn it over to somebody who's better able to create things. Problem being, if you if you've got nobody in the midfield to do that, it becomes harder. We just about got away with it when it was Shinny and Ferguson. It's less clear that we're getting away with it right now. But what I would say is that there are clearly, quite clearly, other areas of the pitch that are more problematic than those two right now. That's the thing. I mean, no, we've got we've got two talented, we've got two really, really talented young players, and no, I mean they are they aren't the issue. I think that you know they're the type of guys that if we're gonna, if we can keep hold of them long term, that's a type of guys that you know you want to you want to get the team built around. Um, and I'm sure I'm sure that a new man, if you know, if a new manager comes in at the end of the season, or if Derek McInnes is the manager next season, I mean, I'm sure that's something he will he will have and has identified as well. I mean, I'm certain that both of them will will play. Whether McCurry is still a midfielder, I think 
still remains to be seen. I think, you know, six months after he signed, we're still really no closer to answering that particular question of where his best position is. I'm not saying that people are really beginning to pick at the seams of everything that we do now, but we have a question from Daz Sutherland about why have we done the same kickoff routine for about 25 <laughs> years now. Um, have we? Have, I don't know if I'm just I not paying I... enough attention. I remember Calder, we'd always went for the kind of high ball to the flanks, didn't he? Well, are we still I, see, I, 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 I seem to remember, and I thought, always thought that that was a Scovdal thing as well. Um, oh yeah, it, you know, it has happened. It has happened. Um, it has happened a few times, but um, I think we notice it more because it always go- ends up going out for a shy. Well, speaking of Evie Scovdal, uh, Graham Hurd says um, we an Evie Scovdal style red arrows corner routine help score a goal. Frankly, mate, at this point, I, I'd try anything, absolutely anything. I'd hire the red arrows to do a fly pass if that would help. Oh no, wait! Hiring the red arrows to do anything was associated with football <laughs> is the worst idea in the world. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I saw I saw that as well. I mean, I think wasn't there wasn't there a clip knocking about on Facebook or, or Twitter or something where of some Australian game where um, it was very similar to the Red Arrows. This was in the last week, and like the the attacking team formed a wall on the edge of the box, and then they all started they all steamed into the box uh, to try and do it. Look, yeah, I'm the same as you, Richard. I'm willing to try anything. If Andy Constein wants to sit on Ash Taylor's shoulders at a corner, let him do it. Anything that will get us a goal at the moment. Right, uh, this section is tantalisingly called Other. Um, so these are the odds and sods questions, which don't quite fit into anything else. Um, some interesting. Uh, they're all interesting questions, obviously. Just that some are more interesting than others. Firstly, Alexander Wilson, how do you think the club will manage to keep the promise of providing full value for the 2021 season tickets? How do you think the club will approach 21-22 season tickets? And what have you thought of the revamped Red TV? In terms of the, no, the full value thing was something obviously I think Dave Cormack had said um, at the start of the season. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think the club will be dealing with that by hoping that people forget yeah, that. I mean, no, because no, people have we, no people. So many people have mentioned it. I think that no, I think this was this was mentioned in terms of with the idea of explicitly with the idea of you no know, getting us no, no thinking that all the season ticket holders will be back into games. Um, and perhaps being you no know, saying no, oh, we'll be able to let you into some kind of, you know, you'll be getting into some kind of maybe one of the cup games for free or something. I don't know, um, you know, a, 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 an early round Scottish Cup game or an early round. Well, they did, uh, if you recall. I think the first European game was. It was, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a fair point. Actually. I mean, I think that was something that they they probably thought about that you know we would be in we would be back in the stadiums by now. Yeah, totally. So yeah, I think essentially the answer to that is they'll be hoping that people forget. I, I think it's probably worth pointing out that I think Motherwell and Dundee United both came out and said that your season ticket will get you into 19 games, whether that be this season or a couple of games for next season. I certainly don't think that they were anticipating yeah. that uh, basically a season ticket would also get you next season as well. So again, they'll also be hoping that people are willing to be gifting essentially their money to the club because um, next season it's going to be very difficult this is why I believe there are going to be far far bigger issues with renewals for next season than whether or not Derek McInnes is still in charge No, in terms of next season season tickets I fully expect um, and no, which means I will be absolutely wrong but I don't expect we'll see them on sale anytime soon they won't be on sale until I think there's a plan 
on how they can get how we can get us back into the stadium. To be honest. Well, of course, we're for due the uh, chairman's update any day now. Some you know maybe get a bit more clarity on that quite soon. I'm certain that won't be an absolute shit show um, going ahead with that in the current climate. <laughs> um, Red TV, Martin. I obviously didn't see much of their live broadcast before. You know what? It could be the greatest sports television production in the world ever, and it still wouldn't be a millionth as good as being there for me, anyway. No, I mean, look, none of us want to be sitting watching a watching a laptop screen or a phone or an iPad uh, instead of being there. Um, look, it's it's. I've not. I'll be honest. I've not seen no the, in in previous no previous seasons when it's been just no international for the international punters. I've not seen very much of it, so I can't really say. I mean, I think it was very much a bare-bones operation, just basically the feed, maybe one camera, maybe two cameras. I mean, obviously there has been an investment in it, which there had to be, which I think most clubs have done. You see people moaning about the Red TV commentators. What do you expect? They're they're club employees. Of course, there's going to be a sort of (laughs) Pravda-style distortion of reality. To expect anything else. I think the presentation, no, the presentation's been good, um, no, Rob McLean is great. Um, I've really enjoyed that. They've had a decent, decent selection of guests. Some, some good, some, some good, some not so good. It's been nice seeing like you no know, guys like Bobby Clark um, on the coverage. He, I thought he was great. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been entertaining. Obviously, you no, know, there's guys on that'll have opinions. Um, you know, um, you notice Kevin McNaughton's not been, not been back on since he almost fell asleep during that Friday night game. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been it's been decent, and you know, um, if they if they can, I mean, I don't know what more they can do with it going forward because I because after you no know, the after this season, you no, know, they're going to want us back into the ground, um, and obviously the you know, the television contracts and all that kind of rules will once we're back into stadiums, that'll all you no know, fall back into the uniform agreement where you can you know you can't have people within the UK, you know, purchasing the games and all that kind of stuff. So it's going to go, it will go back to normal. Um, there's probably more they could be could do in terms of presentation, but I mean, I'm not going to pretend. I don't think they've ever released the numbers of um, Red TV international subscribers. Um, I've I've never seen that, so I don't think we'll we'll see any kind of. I think it will go back to bare bones, as you said. Okay, um, next question from Michael Dart with a hint of devilment. Were the 80s and Alex Ferguson the worst thing to happen to the club? Has such unprecedented success turned the manager's job into a poison chalice because the home fans of a certain generation have unrealistic expectations? You think it's right now I get the impression that it's the young team with less patience than us old fucks who remember Alex Ferguson. And the point is that right now, Derek McInnes is being compared against his own record, his own record in the earlier years of his tenure. Not Alex Ferguson's record, not Mark McGee's record. He is he is falling against the standards which he himself set. And that's obviously a good thing, a very good thing that standards have risen. So that, say, you know, when we were finishing ninth repeatedly under Craig Brown, that was kind of accepted with barely a shrug because people stopped caring. And I think the whole whole idea about unrealistic expectations, it's an interesting one, because if you ask any Aberdeen fan if they expect to win every game, and of course they're going to say no. And, you know, if you ask them realistically if third place was acceptable based on our budget and so on, they would probably say yes. Obviously, we would wish for as high up the league as we can, and we would hope that the club would go into the season believing that they could win it, but... You know, I think there would be a realism. However, 
if you ask them whether they expect to win every single game against a side with fewer resources than us, they'll say yes. But then, on the other hand, they'll also expect us to compete and beat more than, occasionally, sides operating with many times their budget. So it's almost like on a macro scale there can be acceptance that finishing third and, and can can be acceptable. But on a game-by-game micro basis, that's not the case. Do you see what I'm driving at there? Yeah. I, I mean... <sighs> That sounded like no, but said yes. No, no, I, I do, I do hear what you're saying. I mean, look, it's still the the que- the que- the question is, um, no, it's it's obviously no. I don't think Michael's been been totally totally serious by asking that anyway. Um, and I do, I agree, I agree with 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 pretty much everything you're saying there. I mean, look, there was no way that was obviously the worst thing to happen. I mean, the history is the history in terms of probably helps is helps the club people throughout Europe and throughout the world. Know the name Aberdeen because of what we did in the eighties. Um, so I think that I think that's helped. Um, yeah, yes, you know, we it, it's only a poison chalice if you know if we allow it to be, and I, and by that I mean I mean the supporters. If we're constantly comp- if if we are constantly comparing every manager Alex Ferguson, um, you know, then things are you know, then it, there will become a poison chalice because nothing will ever be good enough. Um, you know. It didn't matter how good Ian Porterfield was, you no, know, or, or could have been. When he came in, he was never going to match up to Alex to Alex Ferguson, was he? There were significant issues in the Porterfield team. If, if you're getting bored by the lack of goals now, then uh, just to say that the Porterfield diva was was, if anything, more soul destroying. And but people so readily forget. And I made this comparison with Billy Miller before, like his era, and it's almost like Aberdeen fans are determined to stick up for William Miller's time in charge because he got so much stick from people outside the club for not doing well at Aberdeen. He's seen as a failure to non-Aberdeen fans. And the almost reflex action to defend William Miller from Don supporters has been to say, you know, no, some of the best football we've seen under was under Miller in 92, 93. And that is absolutely right. But what we then, I think, as a supporter, tended to forget down the years is that his... Rain lasted for for two and a half years, and the second season was really just what we're seeing now: just a failure to score enough goals, a failure to win enough games. And then in the third season, well, we continue feeling it's going off uh, goals, but then we stop keeping them out at the other end as well, and it goes completely off um, off the pot. So I think the whole the whole thing about our expectations has been absolutely done to death. I'm glad that we now have expectations again. I'm glad that we have had a manager who has who has raised those expectations up off the floor. And I can pinpoint the exact season when those expectations, you know, we became just a, the tartan army of club football, the Don support. And that was Sebi Schofield's first season. I am delighted that we're now in a position where we, we can turn around and say, you know what, even if we do finish third this season, we still believe that we still rightfully believe that a change of manager can be a good thing I'll be honest with Richard, one of the things I always enjoy sitting in the five and a half years we've been doing this podcast is that how you absolutely do not hide your disgust at the, the conga that happened at, at Hamden that day I was I was in that conga, I was so drunk <laughs> that I was disgusted at myself and in that conga at the same time I, lo- I love that, just no, 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 no attempt to hide it um, contrasting to that uh, that point from Michael, um, 
Stevie G on Twitter. Uh, we get levelled with the unrealistic expectations tag by the media and other club's fans, but it's a case to say Aberdeen are the biggest underachievers in Scottish football over the last 30 years. Um, well, name your criteria, Stevie. Um, wages spent the trophies won. I think that's the new Rangers would win that quite comfortably. Number of trophies, well, there's plenty of teams who have won no trophies in the last 30 years. League finishes, relegations, is that your criteria? Because clubs similar uh, scale to us have certainly been relegated a few times. But in the last 30 years, of course, we've had some of the very, very worst seasons that the club have ever had. And of course that was achievement, not just based on our relative resources, but on our historical record. But, you know, we've also had a run of seasons under the current manager, which would be in the top quarter of seasons that the club have had. Even this one. Even this one is an above-average league campaign so far. I know people won't believe that, but in terms of points won, purely based on points won, you can't give a figure to entertainment value, I'm afraid. In the history of our club, we've had a very uneven split of trophies. We had that golden era under Alex Ferguson, and it was magnificent to live through, and a great thing for the club. Absolutely, it meant that our name is known in places where hearts and hibs will never be known. <laughs> you shared Jonathan Northcroft's um, clip about unrealistic expectations earlier on, Richard, on the Twitter feed. I'm glad you did. Um, you know, no, it's a very easy, it's a very easy thing to to hit Aberdeen fans with because you know because we because we expect because we expect to be. No, at the top at the top end of the league, and whether that means third or whatever, you know, we expect to be up there. We expect to be at Hamden in finals. Some of the criticisms Derek McInnes has had is, you know, getting to Hamden isn't success, and it isn't. Other clubs have gotten to finals. Other clubs, you know, I mean, you see, you know, you look at see, there's um, we're going to have what is it? What's a, what's the Betfred Cup final? Livingston against St Johnston. You know, that should be Aberdeen. No, we should. It, we 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 are not being unrealistic to expect to be there and to, to and to win it, but we're not, um, and that's that's where it's like no, we are under. I think that's where the underachieving comes from. Got a nice easy one for the next one though, um, Richard. Um, since we've been waiting since 1984-85 for a club outside the old firm to win the title, exactly who does Scottish football think it's kidding? I don't care if it's one team winning, two teams winning, eight different teams winning. It's not my team winning. I don't really care. As far as the structural issue goes, it's not that unusual for leagues big or small around Europe. And it's only going to get worse. Leagues getting distorted by outside funding. The smaller leagues getting absolutely distorted by Champions League money. But yeah, it, it's all about my team. It's it's about 36 in a row now of it not being my team. And that's all I care about. Yep, snap. Well, so we can move on. <laughs> Um, yeah, stand names. Uh, Locomotive Longhope asks us, uh, new stand at a new stadium or a rebuilt pottery, what should it be called? Well, do you go for the, do you go for the lazy option and name it after Alex Ferguson? Do you, do you go for what I think is the sensible option and the, the stand should be named after Teddy Scott? Well, we've said before and we'll say it again, a museum, I think is, naming a museum after him is an insult. Our training pitch after him would be an insult. I think that a stand named after one of Aberdeen's greatest servants would be a fantastic honour. And if we were to do that, I think one of the, the, the first stand at the new stadium should be named named the Teddy Scott stand. Well, I, I'm against the idea, just generally speaking, because of you know scenarios like that. Who do you judge worthy of the accolade? Who misses out? I mean, the sort of training pitches. 
at the training complex being named after individuals is is nothing. And it's uh, you know Teddy Scott's one of the one of the names in those pitches. Alex McLeish isn't one of those six names, and Alex McLeish is clearly one of the most central figures to to Aberdeen. Full stop. Who draws the line? Who makes the decisions of what is regarded, you know, deemed worthy of naming naming a stand after? I just, I'm just against that whole idea in general. So we got a question in about the club's stated target, their ambition of becoming a top 100 UEFA club. Um, I can't give you the full question, or I can't even tell you who gave us that question because I think either the Tweets being deleted or the account's gone private and we can't see it anymore. But I remember that question came in. Um, and I presume that the club means top 100 based on the coefficient. Now, people might be surprised that we're actually <laughs> tantalisingly close to this, not based on the amount of points we have right now, but based on the opportunities that are available to the club over the next couple of years. Um, you know, we've spoken at length about how third in the league is going to guarantee you group stage football. Now, of course, there's two paths. Uh, you can win the playoff. You can go into the group stage of the Europa League. That'll be harder. It would be more money, presumably. The, uh, the finances for that haven't been officially announced. So it might be harder to pick up uh, coefficient points. You get two for a win, one for a draw. But you get a minimum of three for reaching the group stage. And the coefficient points we've reached just by getting to where we are in qualifying have tended to be one or one and a half per season. So immediately you can see there's a there's an uplift there, even if we don't win a single game in the group stage. However, you go to the um, you drop down into the Conference League by losing the playoff. The likelihood is Aberdeen would be seeded third in that. The quality of the opposition would be lower. You'd have an opportunity, maybe not to get quite so much money in the bank, but to pick up a lot of coefficient points. Now. It's not just this season that third place in the league will give you that opportunity. It's clearly going to be next season, and it's almost certainly going to be the season after that as well. So there's a tremendous opportunity for any club in Scotland to really properly establish themselves, not just domestically as a clear third force, but on the European front as well, consistently qualifying for group stage football and with the financial benefits that come with that. And of course... As you increase the number of coefficient points, you increase the possibility of being seeded in that qualifying round, higher seeding on the group stages, etc, etc. It really is a virtuous circle. So, frankly, two years of finishing third in the league and not completely embarrassing ourselves once we get into group stage football, and we probably would have made it to the top 100 UEFA club based on the coefficients. And it's really, really frustrating that we look like we're going to throw away this opportunity this season. It's it's a sickener, an absolute sickener. All right, um, let's close this off. Um, finally, Mark Stephen, on a sort of non-directly AFC-related point, should Andy Considine be selected for the Euros regardless of form, fitness or anything else, given that capitalising on the Icon Boogie craze without him would be the absolute brassest of brass necks. Well, of course he should be selected for the Euros. He should be captain. He should sing the song. He should write the fucking song. Andy Considine, we salute you. And so say all of us. (laughs) Alright, that uh, is... 
all of your questions answered. Every single one we got in. Every single one. Uh, no, listen, thank you for actually putting forward some, some really good topics, not just focusing in on what all the mainstream media have finally cottoned on to this week, um, because... You know, we have, that has been the background noise for for a long time on here, as you'll know if you listen every week. I hope in our desperate flailing around to, to give you an answer for them that we have done it some justice. We've certainly covered a lot of ground tonight. My thanks to Martin for for his help in rummaging through those tonight. Thank you, Martin. No problem, Richard. Yeah, if anybody, um, if anybody disagrees with any answers, let us know as well. You know, we are only two dickheads on the internet with opinions, um, so we want to hear back from you. We will be back after the St Mirren game on Saturday with another debrief and, well, we're seeing it more in hope than expectation right now, but uh, let's hope that Saturday is a game where we can finally talk about some goals and finally talk about a win. Uh, thanks for listening tonight and come on you Reds.